people, like you said, they come for musculoskeletal stuff usually at first. They come for pain, they come for discomfort, or they, they're stuck in some way. And they could be stuck in some way emotionally, they could be stuck in some way mentally, or they could be stuck in some way, uh, even their performance of something. So they often come for that. But with what I teach, they end up not only changing the thing they wanted to change, but it ends up really changing all other aspects of their self because there's no division. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, Paul is speaking with master teacher and practitioner of the Alexander Technique, Eileen Troberman. Eileen began studying the Alexander Technique 43 years ago and has been in practice as a certified Alexander Technique teacher for over 38 years. She's taught people of all ages and interests how to use their body effectively and efficiently to look better, feel better, and perform better in anything they do. Eileen's taught nationally and internationally at various universities and performance organizations, including Cirque du Soleil. She currently teaches individually tailored private sessions through Zoom from her studio in Encinitas, California, and is on the faculty teaching Alexander for both the top-rated UCSD and Old Globe USD graduate acting programs. Hi, everybody. Many years ago, while working at Sports and Orthopedic Physical Therapy in San Diego, after reading a few books on the Alexander Technique, I searched for an Alexander practitioner in the San Diego area so I could have a first-hand experience of the method. I was very blessed to find Eileen Troberman and did a series of Alexander lessons with her. I was very impressed with the ease of movement, lightness of being, and improved inner awareness I gained within myself. I had already done 100 hours of Feldenkrais training and explored other forms of movement therapy designed to enhance embodied movement, so was very curious to determine the functional differences between the Alexander Technique, Feldenkrais therapy, soft yoga, foam roller work, and other related approaches. One of the key things I picked up from working with Eileen is that the Alexander Technique, unlike most other approaches in this class of therapy, was more functional. Most other approaches are done lying on the ground. The Alexander technique is generally applied in the functional positions one is experiencing challenges in or needs improvement in. Orators, actors, dancers, athletes, and workers will commonly be trained in standing positions and using functional movement patterns common to their environment. A pianist, for example, would be trained in the Alexander technique while seated, as would a cab driver, desk worker, or anyone having challenges while being seated. I began selecting clients that I felt would benefit from the Alexander Technique in concert with my therapy, and Eileen hit home runs every time. If you watch the video of this podcast, Eileen teaches you several very easy, effective applications of the Alexander Technique, and even shows us how to apply the Alexander Technique to ease our mental activity and grow spiritually. Eileen is a very special human being, and she is in excellent condition with excellent posture, even though she's probably close to my mother's age. She is vital, sharp, and a joy to be around and learn from. I hope you enjoy exploring the Alexander Technique with Eileen and I. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today, I have not only an amazing guest, but a longtime friend of mine, Eileen Troberman, who is the most amazing Alexander practitioner that I've ever worked with, and I've met plenty of them in my career. 
And first of all, I'd like to say welcome, Eileen. Thank you, dear Paul. It's so wonderful to be here with you. It's wonderful to connect with you. And Thank you. I just appreciate you so much also. Uh, yes, thank you. I was trying to remember what year it was that you and I began working together. I know the first patient that I referred to you was Charles Keeling. Do you remember Charles? I do. Yes. And I think it was, was it, it was in the early nineties, I think. Yeah. Or maybe been, it was the late eighties. Yeah. Even. I think it might've been the late eighties. Cause, uh, he was a patient of mine in, in, um, I think sports and orthopedic physical therapy. And I was there in the, uh, from 88 to about, uh, 88, four years to 92. And, um, a little fun tidbit of information for the listeners. Charles Keeling was a professor at the Scripps Institute of Oceanography, and he was the first man to objectively prove that we were having a greenhouse effect. And he developed the instrumentation to measure the greenhouse gases and sent it up in one of those balloons that goes way up high in the atmosphere, super high. And uh, so he was an amazing human being himself and i remember you know i don't know if you remember but his body was like wood you know he had no movement in his body and i had done a, a hundred hours of training in feldenkrais therapy with uh, frank wildman who trained with feldenkrais himself and in my developing of myself i'd spent time studying every branch of movement and medicine an allied healthcare that I could find. And in that process, I came across F.M. Alexander's book, which I don't remember the title of, but it was, I think, uh, the book that he wrote that was about him and his process. Do you remember the title of that book? Yes, that's called The Use of the Self. Yes. And, uh, you know, I think I found it in a rare bookstore. My One of my habits has always been to find the best places for rare books and, and medical books wherever I travel in the world. And I would come across the most amazing things, often in, in dusty old used bookstores. And I would just let my soul guide me. And I found, you know, I've got a whole library of just mind-blowing books. And, and when I read Alexander's story and his approach, I found it very logical and practical and and. And one of the things I wanted to share, the reason that I would send people to you, particularly instead of Feldenkrais, for example, or some of the other types of therapy, be it yoga or otherwise, is because Feldenkrais, most of the work is done on the ground. So you're usually in a horizontal position, laying on your back or your stomach or your hands or your knees. But Alexander's work is is done oftentimes in the position that the person actually functions in. And when you look at the science of movement, there's a very distinct difference in how we organize movement if we're horizontal and non-weight-bearing versus if we're seated or if we're standing. So one of my questions that I would ask Feldenkrais practitioners but couldn't get a good answer to is, how are you making the transition from whatever the body's learning in the horizontal position to the vertical position 
when the way the brain selects motor programs is very different when you're in a standing or a seated position than it is when you're laying down. And I never could get a straight answer. But, I mean, I already knew the answer. I just wanted to hear it from them to see if maybe they had a different take on it that might expand my understanding or awareness of, you know, how different people see the body or see movement. So, you know, I came to you myself because I wanted to experience the Alexander approach from a trained Alexander practitioner. And it was one of the things that I noticed immediately was that it was very applicable and very practical. In just a few minutes, you made my body move like, uh, I would say you took the weight out of my body would be an analogy. Right. And and it was so simple. But the other thing is, there was a commonality between Feldenkrais and Alexander and that Alexander, I mean, excuse me, Feldenkrais, you're constantly, especially a guy like me that's an athlete, Frank Wildman kept telling me, quit muscling everything, quit muscling everything. Mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not. He goes, yes, you are, you are. But he, but he wasn't very good at really guiding me to not doing that. But you were able to, with your beautiful, gentle touch and just sort of the awareness in just a, a short session was able to make me realize how I could relax more and let my body almost do the moving instead of me driving it to move all yes. the time, you know? And so once I had that experience with you, then I had a visceral sense of, okay, now I know a lot better when the Alexander approach is going to be more effective than other approaches. The problem with yoga is that the range of skill amongst yoga practitioners is as wide as the uh, galaxy from get yourself killed by a yoga teacher to someone very skilled. And it's such a crapshoot. And I found that it doesn't really matter what their qualifications are because I've seen people that are highly qualified yoga instructors that actually are dangerous, especially to people with orthopedic concerns like disc bulges. And I've rehabbed countless people that got injured by yoga instructors. Um, Pilates has the opposite problem. It overactivates things to the point where women coming out of Pilates commonly end up with pelvic floor syndromes from constantly hyperactivating their glutes and their pelvic floor. So that's an extreme excitation approach, which is the opposite end of Alexander. But because the Alexander uh, system has a professional training program like Feldenkrais. Your training's what three years? Three years, three hours a day, four days a week, thirty weeks a year, with no more than five students to every one trainer. Right. Yeah. So the point being is, there's a a systematic approach to producing an Alexander practitioner. So there's a standard body of knowledge, like a dentist or a physical therapist, and so. There's uh, a lot more consistency, I found, amongst the skill level of Alexander practitioners and Feldenkrais practitioners than there is, say, Pilates instructors or yoga instructors or any number, even body workers, you know. Maybe what you could do is, even though I've highlighted a couple of things, could you share from your perspective what the difference between the Alexander technique is 
and others like Feldenkrais Yoga and the kinds of things we've talking talking about because very few people even today know what the Alexander Technique is, which is kind of sad. I think the Alexander uh, body needs to do a better job of exposing themselves because, you know, it, it's amazing to me. We've got you in Encinitas here in San Diego, but hardly anybody knows about you. I have to tell people about you and people that have lived in San Diego for 25 years and people that have been in the health and exercise profession for their whole career I would say one in a hundred know what the Alexander Technique is, which I think is kind of sad. But the point being is most people don't really know what the Alexander Technique is. So maybe you could start first by defining that and then highlighting some differences from your own words compared to other correlative systems that people might think do the same thing. Yes. Uh, Alexander Technique has been famous for being difficult to describe <laughs> because it is a sensory experience and it's an experience of yourself that you've never had before. And finding words we already know the meaning of to use for that is such a challenge. So we often talk about what it does. And, uh, Aldous Huxley, the writer, philosopher, I love it. he said it was like trying to describe the color orange to someone who's never seen. Right. He studied a lot of Alexander. Oh, did he? That's so, amazing. Yes. Yeah, I didn't wrote know that. a lot about it. Yeah. Made Alexander one of the characters in his one of his books and oh, wow. wrote essays on the Alexander technique. That's Said amazing. It was one of the keys to I forget spiritual insight or enlightenment or something. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's not only one of my heroes as an amazing writer, but he's a pioneer in the use of psychedelics, which mm -hmm. is dear to my heart, but a genius of a man. Yes. So yes, and um oh very open to exploring new things and so I I often I describe the technique according to who's asking me, but in a general sense, I would say it's how to recognize when you're interfering with yourself and how to undo that so that you can do what you want to do better. But it also makes this underlying bottom line difference in your general everyday coordination each time you make that change. So you end up just when you're not using it, when you're doing anything, your coordination, your ease is better. You're able to recognize right away, oh, wait a minute, that's I don't need to do that. Or here's what's interfering with that. So it's a way to recognize that, to learn to recognize that and to learn to undo it. Yeah. And and when you're talking about that, that is really, if uh, if I would put it in my own words, the level of excitation that we we apply to a given movement. Yes, or a given thought. Mm -hmm. Even. Yeah, yeah, that'd be interesting to get into. Uh, maybe when we're getting into some of the more subtle applications. I think one of the things you're hitting on there is the fact that the body is tied to our our feeling sense, our emotional sense, our mental sense, and even our um, extra dimensional sense. Because really, we're, our consciousness is embodied while we're in bodily form. So 
you know, you can't, uh, for example, just the way you can't um, pick up a suitcase and walk without the tongue muscles being involved or the orbicularis oculi or the abductor digiti quinti of your little toe, we can't engage any of these vibrational dimensions without some kind of a um, interconnection, overtone, undertone, vibrational resonance to these other aspects that we often separate from our body due to a scientific materialistic kind of mindset. Absolutely. That is absolutely so. And that's one of the things you end up discovering in the Alexander Technique. Even just by learning certain aspects of it, you find that out for yourself in this. And it's just, I think you said it brilliantly. Absolutely. Thank you. You know, one of the things I was saying before we started the recording is that, you know, I haven't seen you in a long time now. Uh, I don't know how many years, but, you know, the feel I get from you is very much... I, I took my medical Qigong training from a lady named Regina Gill, who at that time was 78, but she looked like she was about 50. And it's interesting because I was telling you, you don't look like you've aged a day since I last saw you. So is Alexander, the Alexander approach, is that a spiritual practice for you as well? Absolutely. It's a practice on all levels. And there's no way of separating those things out totally in ourselves, like you mentioned. Yeah. That's all part of ourselves. And so you start discovering different connections in those areas and that, that the, the thing you change in one holds true for the others. Yeah. Well, the reason I mention that is because what I see and feel connected to you now and your energy is that you're, you're maintaining a very high level of vitality, much like a Qigong master or a Tai Chi master typically does. And so I'm sort of looking at you going, well, you know, whatever Eileen's practice is, it's, it's keeping enough life force energy in her that she's not um, nearly as subject to the forces of gravity and the forces of, you know, gravity emotionally and mentally, right? Gravity is not just a physical thing, right? Yes. There's the gravity of a situation. Well said. (laughs) And the gravity of life. And it seems to me that you're, your uh, practice is giving you levity beyond the physical, which I think is really important for people to understand because the tendency, as we sort of alluded to, is to, to see the body as a sort of a mechanical object and to see the emotions as something happening inside of it and the mind as something doing something to it or, or something mysterious. But on that note, one of my favorite, probably the favorite definition of mind comes from Daniel Siegel, MD. Are you familiar with his work? Yes, I am. He's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And so he says, mind is an embodied and relational process that regulates the flow of energy and information. So the key point there is that mind is embodied and relational. Yes. Right. And, yes, absolutely. And, wh- how and many- we're all so interconnected that way, even that way. Yes. I believe that he spoke at one of our international congresses. Oh, cool. Um, I think he's had some Alexander, so yeah. 
And so, you know, the, the, the thing that that brings up is, you know, you're a professional therapist. Don't you notice how disembodied people are? Absolutely. Uh, most of the population, and we just don't realize it, partly, we don't realize it because most people are like that. We just yes. don't notice the difference. Yes, yeah. it's, it's normal to be unhealthy. It's normal to be um, physically out of shape, whether that be overweight, underweight, just out of balance. It's normally uh, it's normal to have depression today. It's normal to be anxious. It's normal to be on multiple medical drugs. And this is why I remind Jung, uh, people of Jung's uh, quote statement. The average man can never be successful because by definition, you're average. Mm. And so I think when we realize that a lot of what's becoming average and accepted as normal is really an impediment to us achieving our potential, not only as a physical being, but as a spiritual being, because we're we're sort of caught in this almost like a derealization of the relationship between the different dimensions, the nested hierarchies that actually crystallize, you know, you could call it the body, the condensation of consciousness or the crystallization yes. of consciousness. Yes. But when people are derealizing, they're actually leaving themselves. And I think a lot of people's anxiety is really a, a byproduct of their fact that they're unconscious, that they're abandoning themselves. And so you get the same psychological profile of somebody who's got unhealed abandonment issues, which leads to anxiety, which burns the person out and leads to depression. And then they give you drugs that encourage suicide, unfortunately. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I imagine some of you are finding that your mind is not as sharp as it was, or that you can't seem to remember things as well, such as the last page you read in the book, or the key points from a meeting you just attended recently. Do you feel that your brain is taking longer to come online, or that your thinking gets muddled or fuzzy when you've got a lot to get done? If so, Organifi Pure may be just the magic you need. A key ingredient in Organifi Pure, called Neurofactor, showed a significant impact on brain-derived neurotropic factor, which has been widely reported to play a critical role in neuronal development, maintenance, repair, and protection against neurodegeneration. The certified organic combination of herbs in Organifi Pure not only enhances mental clarity and promotes brain-derived neurotropic factor to stimulate the development of new neural pathways, it aids in enhanced digestion, which is important because many cognitive problems are symptoms of poor digestion. To get your Organifi Pure and shop their amazing product line with your Living 4D discount, go to Organifi.com, that's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com, and save 20% on any of their products using the code capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K20, that's check 20 during discount. Enjoy. I'd love it if you could share an overview of your developmental path, what, you know, how your life unfolded and led you to the Alexander work and what happened inside of you that made it your life's career. 
Well, it's an interesting story of coincidence, and not that there really maybe is coincidence, but it's sort of a fateful thing. I um, I was 27, living in San Francisco. I was doing community theater. I was an actor and waitressing during the day to support my acting habit. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I met someone outside a laundromat in San Francisco. There was a crowd gathering on a Sunday morning. It, the laundromat was late in opening. It was sunny out. It's this beautiful day. Everyone wanted to get going. And this laundry was, it was 15 minutes after it was supposed to open. And I was with a friend from out of town and I told her, you know, I know a place a couple of blocks away. Let's go. And a fellow standing behind me said, can I go with you? And it was one of those encounters where you meet someone and you think, oh, they're going to be my best friend, you know, and you spend the time hanging. We went for a walk while our things were in the washer. We folded our clothes together and talked, exchanged phone numbers, really you know, probably with no intention of contacting each other. <laughs> and he might have said at the time that he was studying training to be an Alexander teacher, but I, I don't know. It never it didn't ring any kind of recognition in me. I remember we talked about other things. He didn't mention that he also did acting. I would have certainly said something about that. But anyway, we had this lovely exchange, this nice connection. And then about two, three months later, I had auditioned for a play and got a part in it. And I went to the first rehearsal. And there was this guy saying, you look familiar. I know you from somewhere. And he said, oh, the laundry. But it, this was the fellow that I met at the laundry. But the name of this play, it was just a terrible translation of a French play called The Laundry. <laughs> and we were cast opposite each other. That's so this. funny. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So we decided we should be best friends. This was obviously the sign we should be best friends. And we just hung out as much as we could together. And he was in training to be an Alexander teacher. So he talked to me all the time about the Alexander technique. And at that point, which says something about my lack of open-mindedness at the time, <laughs> I was totally not interested. I did everything I could to get him to change the subject. I pretended I didn't hear him. I turned away. I did anything. <laughs> he would, he would just say, look how tense you are. Look what you're doing with your neck. Look what, you know, and I was like, oh my gosh, I wouldn't want anyone to do that for me. I was, <laughs> and I didn't care. I had, I had, um, my TMJ, my jaw joint was so, had so many problems because of a bite problem that I had gone to lots of specialists, had lots of different kinds of braces and gone to different therapies. And they said, you know, you just need surgery. Your joint is damaged. The cartilage is damaged. How old were you? I was 27. That's, and, that's young. Oh, yeah, I that. had a lot of tension, believe me. <laughs> it's amazing. I, could <laughs> I, can, I can tell. <laughs> so, yeah. And, you know, the joint is really deformed. You can see it on an x-ray. Um, so my jaw used to get locked open before Alexander. Oh, yes. yeah. It was horribly painful. And then I had these weird looking shoulder blades too, that kind of pointed out in the back. And I thought, well, maybe that's genetic. I didn't know. And I, I dressed accordingly because they looked so weird. I was like embarrassed by them. So I was wore kind of blousy things. <laughs> anyway, um, then I had back pain. I had injured my back at 25 from, um, I had sprained my ankle and was working as a waitress and picked up a heavy tub, uh, of, five gallon salad dressing from the floor 
And uh, for a couple of years, I could hardly sit. Anyway, just horrible back pain. So I had all these issues. I mean, many more odd things. And I had headaches every day, too. I took Excedrin every day. And um, this is a 27. But I was still not interested in this technique. Who I thought, who wants to notice what they're doing with themselves? <laughs> I don't want to do that. And um, even though I really liked my friend and I, I didn't connect how he moved and how he was with the Alexander technique. And then this play was so terrible. It was just like in a, in a string of really bad shows that I was committed to once I was in. I thought, maybe I'll do something else. And I thought, well, at 27, I could start, maybe I could start ballet. I'd never taken ballet before, but I thought, I'm a hard worker. You know, I'll do this. So I looked all around San Francisco trying to find the best ballet teacher. And I tried all these different studios whenever I had a break between my waitressing and rehearsals, thinking, you know, I just got to find something different than acting to do. And I I heard of this through another coincidence, so through somebody I worked with. I heard of this ballet teacher who was opening a studio who had taught with the Joffrey. And I thought, oh, this sounds great. And I went to his class, and it was so different than anything I experienced in any of the other ballet studios. But I figured, well, it's because he taught with the Joffrey, of course. Yeah. Um, and, and I loved it. I just thought, oh, this is what I want to do. So I would take, you know, within this two-month period, I took as many classes from him as I could. And then came the closing night of that terrible play called The Laundry. Um, <laughs> and there was my ballet teacher in the audience. Wow. And he was taking pictures. And I thought, this is weird. He doesn't really know me yet. and He doesn't know I'm in the show. What's he doing here? So I got my friend and I said, you know, look, this my ballet teacher's out there. What's he, you know? And he said, no, no, he's taking pictures of me. He's in the Alexander training, training to teach the technique. <laughs> and so the thing is with Alexander training, you're not supposed to be teaching anyone until you finish this three-year program and uh, very intensive training. But so my friend from the laundry just talked about it all the time. But this ballet teacher, he wanted to experiment, so he never talked about it, so no one would know he was teaching the Alexander <laughs> technique. And that's what we mostly did during the ballet class. Right. But I thought that was ballet, and I thought, oh, this is wonderful. So once I discovered that connection, and then I met some other people in the training, and they were all very different characters, different people, different bodies, but they all had a certain energy and grace. And I thought, huh, maybe I could get that. I don't know. Probably not, but maybe, you know, <laughs> so I thought, so I went and I took a regular Alexander lesson and I was hooked at Good. that point. You know, I, my shoulder blades started changing. My jaw was getting easier. And so I decided I was going to take three lessons a week and learn as much as I could and, and as, in as short a time as possible. You know, I was just going to get such a concentration of it because I loved it and I felt so different. And I did that, and it was wonderful. But after a period of time, my friend from the play mentioned they had an opening in the training school. Maybe I would want to go train to teach this. But I thought, I don't want to teach anything. Nah. But then I thought, hmm, it was $5 cheaper than three lessons a week. And that was five days a week for three hours a day. 
my mother would be happy. I was starting on a career. <laughs> so anyway, I did that to know, to know it better for myself. That's really the gist of it. But once, what, once you know it, you know, you're seeing people and they said, oh, they say, oh, my shoulder bothers me or this hurts. Or, and you're like, well, of course, look what you're doing here. Let me show you. This is really simple. You can just change this. So I just started teaching. And then and teaching is wonderful because teaching, I'm just doing this more and more all the time. And everyone's benefiting. And mm -hmm. I'm noticing new things, discovering new things all the time. So that's how I got into it. Well, you know, not only is that a fun story, but it really highlights how the soul knows where you're supposed to be and will do whatever it takes to get you there. <laughs> yes, there's a little more to it, if I may. Yes, please. Uh, so my friend from the, the play, The Laundry, after I had been taking a lot of lessons, three lessons a week, he... Uh, he told me there was this teacher coming to town to do some workshops and that she was the first graduate of FM Alexander's first teacher training course in the 1930s. And so she was the first certified teacher and she was a year older than the year. So that was 1978. She was 79 years old. And he said, she's just the best in the world. You should come take these workshops. And I said, Oh no, thank you. I have my teacher. <laughs> And I wasn't going to go. So he actually paid for me to go. And <laughs> and I went and um, I ended up working with this woman, Marjorie Barstow. Oh, I've not read only, her name before. Yeah. Not only throughout my three years of training, she was from Lincoln, Nebraska, where she grew up, even though she traveled around the world and taught. She was based there. So I would travel to Lincoln, Nebraska for eight weeks during the year, different time, uh, spreading it out throughout the year. And I worked with her apprentice with her it ended up being for 15 years i even moved to nebraska wow there for a number of years to, right by her and assisted her and yeah so she ended up being my main influence in alexander and also it was my stubbornness once again <laughs> you know my no this is fine i'm doing fine and and i'm so lucky that 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 fate Boss forced me, my friend forced me, and not forced me, but convinced me. He facilitated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There, I have a series called Evolve Yourself, and it starts with evolve yourself physically, then emo evolve yourself emotionally, then evolve yourself mentally, then evolve yourself spiritually, and it ends with evolve your career. But in, in that series, I talk a lot about how each of us is, is like a flower going through its growth stages and so many people are stressed to figure out why they're here and what they're here to do. And I tell people, especially young people, the, a lot of the things that you're doing that you think are insignificant or that you don't like doing and that you might think is the only way you can make money right now, but it's not what you, you're meant to do. You get to a certain point in your life where all of a sudden you realize that you're using some aspect of every one of those experiences in order to do what you actually came to do when your flower opens and you have this, ah, I'm meant to be such and such, or I feel most whole when I am teaching or building or whatever that person's calling is. But then you look back and see what I call the golden thread that 
tied it all together. So you're yes, showing us that got the, you there. the golden yeah. thread, right? Yes. Here's one of the things that I want to hear your opinion on. Because we develop motor programs. Yes. Right? We have, we develop pathways. For example, in the science of motor learning, uh, Richard A. Schmidt says it takes about 300 to 350 repetitions of a given movement before it becomes an automatic program. And then at that point, it just runs, shall we say, in the subconscious or unconscious, however you want to classify it. In other words, it's relegated to the it, it goes down lower in our brainstem. The way I describe it to my students is, look, how many of you have cut the head off of a chicken and let it go? Inevitably, there's one or two in class. I say, no, does the chicken just lay there dead? No, it runs across the yard with no head. So the question you always have to ask yourself is, how can a chicken run with no head if movement programs are only in the head? So as we go through the process of developing a motor program, the information becomes stored in the brainstem and spinal cord. For for combative athletes, and I think you probably remember, I spent a lot of my life kickboxing and boxing and, and trained a lot of the best fighters in the world. I tell people the, the reason you have to do thousands and thousands of repetitions, and even when I was on the third best boxing team in the world, we would spend sometimes two hours a day doing the exact same drills that you start with in your first boxing class, a jab, a right, a left, an uppercut. You know, we have them numbered one, two, three, four, and we would do this till our arms were going to fall off. And the reason that you do that is so that if you get knocked semi-unconscious, your body still knows how to defend itself. So you have to take the information below the head. The law of facilitation says when an impulse passes once through a given set of neurons to the exclusion of others, it tends to do so on a future occasion, and each time it traverses this path, the resistance will be smaller. So the question I have is, when you're teaching Alexander, if someone's got thousands or even millions of repetitions in the nervous system of, say, bending over wrong or holding their head in the wrong place while they're at their computer, how is it that you feel that Alexander is able to rewrite that software with such efficiency? Because typically... The research shows it takes 3,500 to 5,000 repetitions to overwrite a dysfunctional movement pattern, particularly when pain's involved because pain is the most powerful reprogramming force ever identified with regard to the human nervous system. And I know, for example, and, and actually the research shows that you may not ever be able to change a program that's that deeply ingrained. For example, a, a traumatic experience that led someone to being injured who then now, for example, maybe had a posterior lateral right disc bulge. So they don't realize they're leaning to the left, even though the disc bulge isn't a problem anymore. They've become conditioned to that posture. So it can take a, a lot of repetition to pull somebody out because you ultimately have to work to create a program that's more efficient than the old pathway 
Another analogy I give is if you try to move a creek by just digging a new ditch, it can take a long time to dig a ditch for a creek. You can't just pick it up and move it. You have to actually encourage the water to flow in another path, which means it has to be more efficient than the path it's going. But you seem to be able to somehow break the law and get people to develop more efficient and new motor programs faster than the research would actually suggest is possible. So I'm curious, how is it that you're able to do that? I I have an idea on that and not being a neuroscience and having nowhere near the knowledge you have about how that works with our brain signals. But I think that we can consciously make a little decision to cancel that habitual pattern. But I, I often wonder, also, some of those patterns are just in us sort of naturally for our survival. We're sort of designed that way and things coordinate a certain way. And we still have that. We still have that signaled. So as we're like with the boxing example, and you're going through those drills and you, no matter how good you get, you got to go through the drills again. Because you have learned something in between each time that makes your jabs better as you practice them and the next time. So you're still practicing the same thing, the same basic, you know, arm, I don't know what it is, the same movement, basically, but not with the same coordination. Right. It's, I think there's a, there's a way, well, in Alexander, what we do is teach a way to cancel the signal to do something the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's and, an, an inhibitory process. Yes. Yeah. And inhibition is one of the main principles in the Alexander technique. Yes. And that, that ability to, to just decide, no, nah, I just let that go. And then to do something differently that we've decided really this would be a little better thing to do. That makes that change. So we're not layering something on top of a habit that's going through the same exact neural pathway. We're not then trying to add another thing that restricts that because that just tightens people up and then they're restricting their movement even more. So uh, we're actually just undoing that signal. And even for a split second, that undoing of that signal has a powerful effect on our whole system that changes things much more than the repeat of the habit has an effect on us. It really makes a little bit of a change. Our sensory system picks up something. A little bit more of our brain is involved, uh, not consciously necessarily, but in all kinds of things in the sensory feedback of that, the things we associate with that particular pattern of movement. Those things change. And it, 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 it doesn't take much of a moment of those changing for it to affect them here on out. Yes. Hi, everybody. You know, apple cider vinegar is like a panacea that's been shown through all sorts of research to help with just about anything. And I personally love this stuff. I found it very, very beneficial on many levels. And Paleo Valley's apple cider vinegar complex is absolutely awesome. 
And I've got Autumn Smith, their founder, here right now to tell you why it will be a great addition to your life. Autumn, what is it about your cider vinegar complex that we should all know about? (laughs) Well, I created the apple cider vinegar complex because I was on a mission to not only live as long as possible, but to feel amazing when I did that. And I learned about apple cider vinegar's incredible ability to help keep our blood sugar very nice and stable, which is one thing we know people who live long, healthy lives have. And then I added organic cinnamon and organic ginger and organic turmeric, all that have different benefits of their own from anti-inflammatory properties to brain benefits. And we put them all into capsules so that you could take it and then have your digestion feel better. You could have more energy. You could have you could avoid the ups and downs all day long because you have that nice, stable blood sugar. And of course, another interesting side is that apple cider vinegar may actually be able to help your body break down glyphosate. So there are so many different ways that you can use this product and reasons that you might. And the The reason it's so important to me is because I want food to be used as medicine. And so we can encourage our bodies to do all of these amazing things simply by the addition of the apple cider vinegar complex. Well, I also love that you have ginger in there because it's a very effective anti-parasitic. And today with the amount of processed food people are eating, uh, it's a really good idea to have some ginger in your diet. So I love this product myself. I use it every morning. And uh, Autumn, where can people get it and what's their discount? You guys can all save up to 15% off with the checkout code CHECK. That's lowercase C-H-E-K 15. And I just wanted to mention too, the number one thing I hear from people is that this complex helps them reduce cravings. So I hope you That's, all love it. Yes. Yeah, so go to paleovalley, P-A-L-E-O valley.com and get your 15% discount. And I hope you love it as much as I do. Really what you're saying, if I interpret it in my own language, is that you're not so much working to change the pattern by making it another pattern that ends up competing with that pattern. You're making the pattern more authentic and more efficient. And since the body operates on what's called the men's principle, minimal electrical neuromuscular stimulation, because the body has to survive in nature for periods of time without food sometimes, and therefore the body's designed to only use the energy it has to use, what I perceive that you're saying is that when you actually use the Alexander technique and inhibit unnecessary excitation, the body has says, ah, finally, you're learning how to save energy. And because there's a survival reward by being more efficient, it seems to me that it's capable of remembering something where when you're teaching somebody another program, there's a lot of energy in the learning process. So it's actually going against what Alexander's doing because now you're adding another program and it has to somehow juggle, well, how do I know which one to use and why should I use that new one? Because this old one is easier to do. So it seems to me that the body has sort of a built-in reward system for efficiency that maybe really hasn't been studied from a neurophysiological approach, or they might actually change the way they perceive how we should be teaching movement. Yes. I, uh, Mike, the woman I mentioned, Marjorie Barstow, the first certified teacher, teacher certified by Alexander, her description of the Alexander technique 
was a study of the efficiency of human movement. Yes, there it is. Yeah. So we are being with our habits. We are actually the ones that are interfering, the ones that don't work out well, the person compensating for this or that. We are being inefficient in those compensations. So if we go to stand up, walk around, do whatever box, hit a ball, whatever it is we do in life, sit at the computer, think. You know, if we're adding that to what we think needs to happen for that, because that got put in there from some trauma or some incident, if we got so used to that, that is inefficient. It makes those things we do less efficient. Interestingly, what this gives me is a deep sense of Taoism. Because really, if you take Taoism and uh, break it down into one sentence, it means this. (laughs) Not too much and not too little. Absolute perfect. To, yes. to live in the Tao simply means don't do more than is ideal and don't do less than is ideal. Right? If you're going to eat, eat enough, but don't eat too much. If you're going to swing the bat, swing it not harder than it needs to be swung or you'll miss the ball and not less than it needs to be swung or you'll miss the ball. So it seems to me that Alexander is really. Uh, a man who found the Tao through his own pathway of movement and over and resolving his own challenges. Yes, absolutely. It's really using what you need, no more, but knowing how, knowing you're using too much, learning to recognize, oh, well, what if I use this little process of the Alexander technique to recognize if I was adding more than that in doing something? And that process, that process that gives people that sense of ease and flow in the Alexander technique helps you recognize when you go away from it. Like, oh, I'm doing too much. And then you can, oh, I don't, I can cancel that. You catch the signal to do the, to do the inefficient habit and you can cancel it right away. You even catch the preset, the signal that goes on before we move, before we do something that sets up the habit and you end up canceling that. I think a good example to help people understand what catching the preset means is for anybody that's ever swung a golf club, you can viscerally know it's a lousy swing and it's not going to do well before it even hits the ball, but it's only 350 milliseconds from the top of the backswing to ball impact. But somehow we have a precognitive awareness that we just are about to make a lousy shot but it takes another 350 milliseconds for the impulse to get from the body back to the brain. And by then the ball's already gone. Yeah. Yes. And even it's before that, it's even, I'm about to swing. Yes. <laughs> it's even there. Uh, if you're sitting there at your computer or somewhere where you can touch something, uh, say I'm thinking, well, you know, I'm about to touch the mouse here at the computer to touch the mouse, something you will Something changes in your system before you even move. You end up adding a certain amount of of pressure or tightness that you're used to to do that movement before you even move. So that's one of the things we work with with Alexander is we don't need to do that. We could have ease. You can measure that. I did uh, some advanced training in EMG uh, analysis with a lady named Barbara Headley, a quite a famous physical therapist. And uh, we had, we did a myriad of EMG analysis on people, but you can actually, 
see on EMG when you ask somebody, okay, I want you to reach for that cup, before they actually even make any movement, all the muscles in the body that facilitate and stabilize and initiate the movement have already turned on. And in fact, you can take somebody and say, okay, you hook them up to an EMG that can be laying on a table and say, now I want you to imagine that you're walking and you'll get a motor pattern that looks just like somebody walking, except it's very, very weak signals. But if you amplify that pattern, you probably wouldn't be able to tell if the per- person was walking or not. And um, I remember reading a, a book about the life of a man named Dennis Coffey, who was, ca- he was a, a officer that was captured in Vietnam and he was put in prison for seven years and tortured almost daily. And the way he kept himself sane was he would play golf in his mind because he was a golfer. So he would imagine that he was going out to his favorite golf courses and he would play 18 holes of golf every day. And he when he flew home and when he got released from the prisoner of war camp and went home, he was curious if his golf game would be better or worse. And his first game back after being in prison and being tortured for, I think, seven years, he had taken, I think, nine strokes off his best game without playing any golf with a golf club for seven plus years. So it is just lending the support to the fact that what we're doing in our minds, our body immediately interfaces with before we're cognitively aware until we develop what you're talking about, the awareness, the precognitive awareness of I don't have to do that. That's a wonderful story. That was a great story. And I'll bet that one of the things that helped him so much in terms of being better was certainly picturing himself doing it, thinking he was doing it. But since he wasn't doing it, he wasn't adding the over-effort to it. Right, that's a great point. So in fact, he was picturing himself doing it easily because he didn't need to feel he was doing it. He wasn't. And so when he went to play golf, when he got out, he, he didn't need to put in that familiar sensation of, okay, I'm ready to do this, which is where the habit kicks in. Yes. It makes me wonder if if any Alexander practitioners have used Alexander for relationship coaching because when you think about how most people engage relationships, be it with themselves or others, to preface what I'm about to say, Deepak Chopra in, in uh, one of the interviews I listened to with him quite some time ago said that Current research shows that the average person thinks 68,000 thoughts a day, of which 90% were negative in orientation. So if you're having an argument with your spouse or somebody that you're close with, normally maybe someone says they're upset at you because you didn't do something or you're wasting time or whatever. And then you start going through a dialogue in your head of all the reasons why they're such an asshole and why they're wrong and how you're going to counterpoint them. So what's happening is that you're really doing the opposite of the efficient way 
And if you pay attention to what your body's doing while you're going through that dialogue, it's preparing for a battle. Yes. So it seems like Alexander could actually be applied to relationships because a person can learn that the same skill they learn to use to move efficiently, they can learn to move away from negative orientation towards emotions and projecting a negative viewpoint onto somebody else and maybe just having more empathy for that person and giving them space to, you know, simmer or or to cool down or to just accept that that's their viewpoint and you don't have to own it. But, you know, when you think of all the stuff that gets wound up in people in relationships and how it becomes an inner dialogue in their head and how they're planning all the counterpoints and what that's doing to their digestion, their elimination, their posture, their neck tension, their jaw tension. It, has anyone used Alexander for that? Uh, yes, everyone who studies it uses ends up using it in everything in their life. So yes, they use it in their relationships. Nobody's come to me directly for that. Usually people come for, you know, some ache or pain or something they want to do better and perform better or improve their posture or something like that. But they end up because they learn the technique, they use it in their entire life. It changes them. It changes how they think of anything. So in that situation, it's not only somebody's reaction to what they're, the person they're in relationship with is saying, but it starts pulling up all their other reactions when somebody yelled at them before in their life or what they think they're doing, they should, you know, they're better at this or whatever, all kinds of negative things in our head get associated with it instantly from the past. Yeah. And we're reacting with that. We're reacting instinctively and instinctively reacting to how the other person is using their body. You know, if they're cowering a little bit, we tend to yell more instinctively. Just there's that attack instinct and then or somebody is like really tightening and attacking we tend to cower in ourselves so there's that there's also mirror neurons yes you know somebody else is really upset and they're like "Ah, you did this and you, you you really you can't do this again this is terrible and so we feel that in our body Mm, and we feel it and we do it we do it physically that same pattern instantly And then the other person senses us doing that pattern just instantly, and they do their pattern more. And then vice versa, back and forth, back and forth, and it really escalates. Yes. It's like an echo or a a ricochet. Yes. And it, it continues to get worse. So there's a way that we'll talk about later in using Alexander in the world, just generally with anyone you see. By changing the way you use yourself, you make them easier because they're imitating. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's a very so whether good it's point. a relationship yeah. conflict or anything. And so there's also going to be we're going to talk about later a way to deal with those cycled negative thoughts. Mm-hmm. That's beautiful. Um, how to use this? For I, that. I think that might be a new vista for you, though. I, I have a feeling Alexander, particularly for how you use that in relationships could be a really nice, very needed exploration that can help people use bodily awareness to manage and integrate their thoughts and and feelings and emotions more effectively. Because I've never seen anything on Alexander for relationships, but it's, it's, 
Because ultimately, everything is relationship. You can't have love without relationship. There has to be a subject and an object for love to happen. I define love as the flow of energy and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self and or other. Yes. So there has to be the flow of energy and information through to self. I'm loving myself or I love my dog. And love, if it's not empathetic and compassionate, is not love because those words mean to include, right? Yes, yes. So in a strange and wonderful way, what you're telling me is that Alexander Technique actually teaches you to love better because you become more efficient at the flow of energy and information, and it becomes not too much and not too little. So, you know, you can have your alcohol, but you don't have to drown yourself in it. You can have your donut, but you don't have to eat the whole box. You can do your workout, but you don't have to kill yourself to try to prove to your daddy that you're a tough guy. Right. So there's a lot of um, it's fun because I haven't talked to you for so long, but it's by by revisiting the science and the philosophy of Alexander. It's just making my brain see, wow, there's a lot of ways to apply this that that uh, I hadn't really considered other than my clinical applications, because back in the days I was working with you, most people came to me with physical problems. And then as my career grew and, and my own knowledge evolved, then it became, you know, digestive eliminative problems and hormonal problems, which then I began to realize were all the byproducts of emotional problems, which were all the byproducts of thoughts, which were the byproducts of belief systems. And so then I had to say, okay, well, to really understand people, I have to study the psyche. So I spent 20 years studying Jungian psychology and every branch of psychology to try to figure out, okay, what is the psyche? How does it function? And so what you, what you see is that the psyche is a rainbow bridge. And at one end of it, you have pure consciousness. And at the other end, you have the crystallization of form or self. But when we're changing ourselves for the better, anywhere in the continuum, we're affecting the continuum. Right. We're really changing where we are in that vibration. Yeah. Where it's more dense or more refined, complex, uh, free. Yeah. yeah. You can't remove a color from a rainbow. It's impossible, right? right? So Marie-Louise von Franz, a, f- a famous Jungian analyst who was Jung's assistant for many years, s- describes the psyche as a rainbow bridge. And it's bridging the unknowable God or source with the knowable perceivable self. And so what what you you see is that this thing we call ourself is highly integrated, but because most of us <clears throat> haven't evolved to really have a visceral sense of ourselves beyond our bodies, that's why we talked about how many people are derealized, they're they're disconnected from their self. It seems that, and I've known this for for a lot of my career, that if I can help somebody, for example, if somebody has sexual inhibitions, you almost always find, you can find that their pelvic girdle's all locked up, or it's completely shut off. 
and that by doing things like uh, pelvic rocking on a Swiss ball or uh, infant development exercises such as the inchworm or Feldenkrais exercises like the hip and pelvis integrator, anything that brings their consciousness into that body, into that region, is bringing their psyche back home. And then it's as though the old friend that's been away comes back and the lights go on and the house is being lived in and all of a sudden things start to work. So I think there's a lot of beautiful interfaces. Hi, everybody. You know, leaky gut syndrome is one of the most common inflammatory conditions that not only really seriously hampers our digestion, but leads to a wide variety of health problems from cognitive dysfunction to low energy to bad skin problems, pimples, rashes, the list of of symptoms that can come from leaky gut syndrome is very, very long, and it's often misdiagnosed, and people go down all sorts of rabbit holes treating symptoms but not really getting to the cause. The most common three causes of leaky gut syndrome are stress, just too much stress in your life, which these days is really common for people. Next, is the side effects of medical drugs. And about 85% of the world population is on prescribed medical drugs. And the third is consuming alcohol. And whenever stress levels rise, medical drug consumption and alcohol consumption go up, increasing gut permeability and leading to lots of health problems and energy deficiencies. And people just feeling lousy when they really need to have the energy to respond to life more effectively but we have a phenomenal solution for you, which is Leaky Gut Guardian made by Bioptimizers. I brought Wade Lightheart in to tell us how it works and why we should use it. Wade, what is special about Leaky Gut Guardian and why should we all be using it? Well, researchers from Harvard and John Hopkins say that over 70% of your immunity is from the gut and about 80% of the population is suffering from a permeability where basically the bad guys are pooping in your blood. Yes. The bottom line is Leaky Gut Guardian does four different things. It eliminates bad guys. It seals the gut. It replenishes the right probiotics that kind of give you the feel-good probiotics and provides those feel-good probiotics that make the neurotransmitters in the body. It contains a unique patented formula that contains IGY Max, which serves as the patch. We actually have two PhDs in biofilm who are testing this product, and the results are extraordinary to wipe out the bad guys, fix and patch up the gut so that you get the nutrients you want without the waste from these pathogenic bacterias. It is truly extraordinary. And if you mix that vanilla version that we have inside your, you know, espresso coffee with your fats, it makes a beautiful vanilla latte, tastes great. And of course, we also have a uh, chocolate carnivore, we call it for people who want the collagen and bone broth boosted on that one. That's for that one. And of course, the vegetarians choose the vanilla. Of course, you don't have to be a vegetarian to love the vanilla. No, absolutely. So it's very, very exciting. My wife, Penny, actually... Uh, somehow managed to get that out before I could get a hold of it. Uh, but she's working on that and uh, healing her gut. And she tells me that it's an excellent product. So I'm really excited. And she never gives compliments unless compliments are due. If she doesn't like a product, she'll tell me. So right from my own family, I have great evidence that Leaky Gut Guardian is the real deal. So why not give yourself not only some healing, but even if you feel great, some protective measures keep the right supplement coming into your body, keep the right bacteria. And the PhDs in biofilm, just so you guys are clear, that's the gut barrier you're talking about. So they have PH, the, the formulators have PhDs or doctorate degrees in the science of 
the gut barrier so the product is developed by people that know exactly what they're doing is what you're really saying. 100%. All of our products are made with the highest level of research, the experts in their field, combining with the highest quality products to ensure that it delivers on the promises and everything's backed up with a 100% money back guarantee. You can get Leaky Gut Guardian at leakygutguardian.com forward slash living number four, little d. Put in Paul 10, that's capital P-A-U-L 10, for a 10% discount off this and any other Bioptimizer's products. That's leakygutguardian.com forward slash living number four, little d. And at the end, Paul, capital P-A-U-L 10 to get 10% off. I love Bioptimizer's products. I use them every day, and I'm confident that you will love them too. Enjoy. I'd like to hear from you. What are some of the things that you've helped people with using the Alexander technique so we can kind of get a picture for the listener? Who Who is a potential Alexander client? Because it could help. We already know musculoskeletal stuff, but could you give us sort of look through your mind and say, okay, I've helped people with this or that so that listeners could say, well, maybe it could work for me. Yeah. Well, people, like you said, they come for musculoskeletal stuff usually at first. They come for pain, they come for discomfort, or they, they're stuck in some way. And they could be stuck in some way emotionally, they could be stuck in some way mentally, or they could be stuck in some way, uh, even their performance of something. So they often come for that. But with what I teach, they end up not only changing the thing they wanted to change, but it ends up really changing all other aspects of their self because there's no division. So, um, there's so many, so I don't have people don't come, you know, go, okay, you know, I've got this emotional list, so I'm going to Alexander because they don't know that would affect that. Um, and, but people come for some other reason, you know, somebody says your posture is terrible or whatever it is. So they're trying to be, get rid of some pain, chronic pain or any performance problem. So they come for that, but those other things then change. And so they come in and say, hey, this happened. I was talking to my wife the other day and this, you know, I realized we always get in this argument. And and I just looked at her and I could see, you know, she was tightening a certain way. And I recognize that's not her. That's just a habit that's kicking in. And I released that myself. She released that. So there's people don't come for those particular things at this point. They get them in their in their experience. Yes. I'm sure you've had situations, though, where somebody came to you, say, for back pain, but then said, oh, by the way, for some reason, my digestion's much better, or my ulcer's going away or is gone. Have you got some cases like that? Uh, this is maybe not quite that, but it's an interesting story. Uh, uh, a mother brought her four-year-old daughter to me because her daughter was born with a ruptured diaphragm. Mm-hmm. And they didn't know it till the daughter was a year and a half old, and then they repaired it. But she had developed some very funny breathing patterns. And uh, at four years, you know, after that, they put her in therapy, respiratory therapy, and physical therapy, trying to get her to use her diaphragm in breathing. But she had not used her diaphragm, so she wasn't 
using it. And they would tell her things like, yeah, push your stomach out, get your stomach to move out. They'd tell her these things and she physically would try and do those things with no association with breathing. Um, and so, and she had never, she had never played at that age. Her mom had wanted to take her at that time. This was a number of years ago to the mall to walk it, but she couldn't do that. She'd get out of breath, out of energy. Um, so her mom brought her to me. She heard about me and she brought here, brought her here. And within like the, after the first lesson, this little girl went home and did, her mom said, did somersaults across the living room. Wow. And, um, Anyway, she, she was just fine after a few lessons because her coordination came back, her natural coordination. The way I would summarize it for the listeners is you never know until you try. And since you've probably already tried a lot of things that haven't helped, helped minimally or made you worse, the side effect of Alexander technique is nothing but being better and healthier. So you got nothing to lose and everything to gain. Yeah, and we put far too much, we don't realize that we get used to a habitual sense of ourselves muscularly. I think you were saying something about that earlier and in your, in your science studies and how we do that, but we do get used to how we feel ourselves. We feel ourselves quite often through habitual muscul muscular tension, and we don't realize that. Yes. It just seems normal. That seems like me. I feel like me today. And so we put that in everything we do, and then when we want to do something that's a little or we want to do something a little better, we end up putting more of that in. And that makes it worse. So um, whatever it is, we're bringing a habitual sense to it. And that habitual sense is connected to so many things, so many of our past thoughts and ideas, so many, so many habitual ideas, so many insecurities, so many worries and they just get connected with that like oh i'm not going to be able to do this well i can't get it done in time whatever whatever it is and that's that all adds more of that tension and it's connected more with those habitual feelings and emotions you know you're reminding me when i was in massage therapy school which was when i had a full head of hair <laughs> <laughs> um we had to read the book Emotional Anatomy by Stanley Kelman, and, and he talks a lot about emotional armoring. And I studied um, Thomas Hanna's work on somatics and various others. Uh, but because there is a lot of emotional armoring in people, I mean, I, I I've worked on countless thousands of bodies, and you touch some people and their abdominal walls rock hard and they're just laying on their back on a treatment table. It's like they're getting ready to get punched and or their throat's all tight or their back's chronically tight. Now, we can use the chakra systems to get to the psychological correlates of this because, you know, you know that map is very well established and I've used it very successfully um, on many levels. But by going through Alexander training, one would become very aware of where that emotional armoring was because it'll actually create obstruction to the natural flow of the musculoskeletal system. So you as a teacher are going to spot that just as sure as a cop's going to spot someone stealing in a store. I, I can watch people walk down the street, and I've done this for my students before, and tell you, what's going on with them. And I will have my students that I've never met get up and just walk in front of me two or three times. And I'll write down, I'll say, okay, 
tell me how your digestion is. Tell me how your relationship with your father is. Tell me how, uh, what, tell me the story about what happened when you were born and you had, I suspect you had some kind of a birthing crisis and they'll oftentimes just break down and start crying. And so how in the hell did you pick that up? Just watching me walk. And I always tell him, well, I'm not just watching you walk. I'm feeling you inside of myself. And so whatever's happening in you is happening inside of me. And I'm paying attention to the images that are rising up because I empty my own mind to let you in. And so I'm trying to teach my students that what I'm doing is not anything magical that we can't all do. It's just most people, when they're analyzing somebody, try to think about it. Yes. But what I try to teach them to do is quit thinking. And and, experience it. And experience it. You know, and so like, for example, when I'm teaching my students Tai Chi or working in, I always love it when birds fly by. I say, you'll know your Tai Chi's working because when you look at a bird, you'll feel it flying inside of yourself. That's how you know that you're reconnecting to life. Yes, I agree. Our mirror neurons are even cross species. I mean, just in the neuroscience way of explaining that. Yeah. But yeah, we are all so connected. Whether we're seeing someone, whether we're hearing something, even sometimes in silence, you can pick up what's going on, even if you don't see them or hear them. It's, it's fascinating in that aspect. I just want to say about those kind of armony, armoring habits is that as they start changing, you realize as you get an experience of, oh, you know, oh, that changes that a little bit. You start realizing, you start catching that you're actually signaling yourself to do that each time. It's not in our very noticeable awake conscious, but those are actual choice signals. It's kind of funny. You start, once it starts changing, you think, oh, look, I just decided to do that because I thought that was going to do something good for me. Mm-hmm. Sometimes just a little silly thing. I know we get into more practical things later, but. I'll, I'll often tell people with habits as they catch their habit to ask two questions. One is, so what, what they can do when they catch their habit, they can immediately make a change and that's great. But another alternative is to notice the habit and ask, what's the good intention? Because we don't do a habit, but for thinking it's going to do something good for us. And that good intention that good intention could be something that we will always have that good intention. And maybe it's not a bad thing, the good intention. But the second question is, does that habit do that for you? Right. That's a good question. And then people go, well, no, in fact, it makes it much worse. And then there's that little information in their mind that doesn't tie those two so instantly together because there's a realization they don't necessarily belong together. Well, that brings up an interesting point because having worked with countless addicts in my life and looking at the definitions of addiction, I found them to be uh, so technical that they were incorrect on many levels. So I created my own definition, which ties into exactly what you're saying. I define an addiction as any repeated behavior that does not produce the results you want. And that's exactly what you're saying Mm -hmm. here. You're saying, we have habitual habits or tendencies, and if we ask ourselves, what is the purpose of that, and then is it serving the purpose, we can see 
we've probably, you know, had an opportunity to act empathetically towards somebody, but then bit their head off out of habit. And our attention, our intention may have been to win the argument, but when you ask, is it working? Well, you might have won the battle, but you lost the war. You're divorced. <laughs> so, so you, you see what I'm saying is that really in many ways, what you're identifying would fall into my definition of an addiction. Yes. Yeah. It's in a way that's what our, our misconstrued habits are, the ones that don't benefit us. Yes. They're, they're sort of an addiction that we just use as a go-to because we think they're going to do the thing, whatever it is that it is our good intention. And oftentimes, you know, I think the majority of times that these habitual patterns that we're now referring to as addictions, unfortunately, they're um, situation-specific. So if you look, for example, at the influence that a parent or parents have on the way their child experiences the world and relationships, we, we may have developed a pattern or a habit or a behavior as a survival compensation, but we've lost the awareness that the person that we're married to isn't our mother or that the man that's our boss isn't our father. But in Jungian psychology, we're projecting the mother and the father archetype out, and therefore we're not actually seeing the person that's in front of us. We're seeing what we're projecting. So it seems to me that what you're offering through this movement awareness is actually a way to stop the projection to see what's really going on. Yes. Yeah. And catching how we just do something that affects us in, on all levels, but affects us in a certain pattern of physical tension and pressure <clears throat> that we feel, but we don't necessarily recognize as physical tension and pressure. It just seems like, oh, that's what I need for this situation. And when we're used to doing that habitually in a particular situation, we don't, we don't let it totally go even after that situation. Right. And we carry it into other things we're doing and how our, our nervous system is. It gets used to something we're doing habitually and doesn't tell us about it. And so we end up when we get in that situation again and we think we need that same pattern of feeling of I'm ready or whatever. What happens is that that pattern then is on up of still holding a bit of it from another time. So we have to do more with it, more tension, more force to feel like we're activating that pattern that feels ready. So people, as they get older, get a lot more compressed from that. Yes, there's a hardening process. You, you see it when you work with bodies a lot. There's a, you know, what Kalman calls an armoring process, but you know, Steiner talks a lot about supersaturation. For example, if people eat sweet foods all the time, it overwhelms their senses. Mm -hmm. So they have to keep eating more to get the same cognitive sense of satisfaction. So we can, you know, get in the habit of being overly reactive, for example, and then not realize that we're now having to become more and more reactive to actually get the same sense that we did when we were minimally reactive five years ago. Absolutely. Yes. You know, it reminds me 
I've seen and studied research on the DNA, and they show that when people are under stress, the DNA winds itself very tightly. Mm. But as they relax, the DNA unwinds and lengthens. And Heart Math talks about this. There's a number of researchers talking about that out there that I've studied. And the DNA is actually not only the biological coding for behaviors and protein folding, but it's a cosmic antenna system. And so just like yoga is a system of postures for bringing us into contact with different frequencies that give us different psychic perceptions and types of energy that we can use in our body, if if we learn to unwind, then we broaden our frequency perception. And as we stress, we narrow our frequency perception because we're looking at a threat as opposed, we don't see the flowers anymore. We only see the lion. So it seems to me that as I'm interpreting your your description in my head, I'm having this vision of not only the body, but the DNA unwinding so that all of a sudden we can smell the flowers but we didn't realize that we're carrying so much wind on us that we're we're actually um, creating a lock. Yeah, it's the I hate to use the analogy, but it's almost like sex with a condom. You never really feel your partner, so we're sort of putting a condom around ourselves that's separating us from reality. You know, glutathione is an extremely powerful antioxidant. I don't know if any of you have ever noticed on my YouTube videos from uh, a couple of years ago, I had a spot forming just below my left eye, which was the result of me doing so much research on herbs. And Angie, who is a nutritionist, said, you should try some glutathione. Maybe you need more antioxidant support. And literally day by day, I watched it disappear as soon as I started taking glutathione. But I didn't have the kind of glutathione that Symbiotica produces in their new Regenesis product. So I've got Shervine here to really explain what is unique about their new glutathione product. Shervine, what can we expect from Regenesis? Well, that's an interesting story, Paul, um, regarding that spot. And it just shows you exactly how strong glutathione is. We went out of our way. You know, It took us about 18 months to develop this, a lot of hard work. The entire team of scientists got together. And what we found was that most glutathions on the open market oxidize because of the sulfur compound that's attached to it. As soon as oxygen hits it, you get this sulfur you know, layout, which is very, very unpleasant. Our glutathione, which is liposomal, so it is protected, is bounded to lactoferrin. Lactoferrin is the, is the amino acid chain that makes colostrum colostrum. So this is our first non-vegan formula. It's still vegetarian, but it isn't vegan. Along with that, we have CoQ10, PQQ, which is pyroclinolone, which is a good brain nootropic, and lactobacillus rhamnosus, a human strain probiotic. All of these come together. It supports healthy intestinal tract, mitigates food environmental allergies, improves nerve growth factor, reinforces the immune system, neutralizes free radicals, antiviral, antibacterial, removes heavy metals, and just boosts the brain-gut relationship, which we know now is so critical to longevity and optimum health. This is truly one of our favorite, favorite formulas. Also, unlike a lot of supplements, it tastes very, very good. I was super (laughs) impressed when I tried it. Yeah, we find that to be very important. And again, we don't use anything artificial. Everything is organic. They're all extracts. And there's zero sugar in any of our products. Awesome. So 
Head on over to C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com, that's symbiotica.com, and on checkout, use your code, capital C, capital H, capital E, capital K, 15, to get your 15% discount on Regenesis and any of the other amazing products at Symbiotica. Enjoy, and if you have spots on your skin, you might just get rid of them with this amazing product. I wrote a note that why this is in a, these th- concepts are so important is because if you just bought a book of exercises of Alexander techniques, which I've seen in bookstores, you don't have someone like you there that's an expert in seeing that we can't see these parts of ourselves or we wouldn't need the help in the first place. Like I have many elite athletes that I say, okay, I've got to evaluate your deadlift or something. They go, oh, you don't need to look that. I'm an expert at that. I go, yeah, prove it. (laughs) (laughs) And next thing you know, I've showed them 15 things they could do to improve their deadlift. And I prove to them and say, okay, watch, I'll show you this, this one technique. And it adds 15 pounds to their best lift they've ever done. And it only takes 10 seconds because I know what I'm looking at. But I'm saying this for the listeners that you won't really realize where you're doing this until you're working with somebody like Eileen, who's spent her whole life being not only involved in this practice at the most intimate levels of herself, but is an expert at seeing what she's trained to see because she knows what she's looking for, like a detective, right? Um, Which is a good time to interject that you don't have to fly all the way to Encinitas, even though you'd love it. Um, Eileen does uh, a lot of work on Skype, and I do too. And I can see you and you can see me and how we're moving. And I can, I teach people to do all sorts of Tai Chi movement exercises, breathing exercises. And in this crazy ass COVID environment, it's lovely that people can get access to someone like you because think of all the stress people are going through right now. And they don't realize they can have Eileen right in their home, even if they're in Hong Kong. Yeah. And it's actually, it's been interesting in some ways. It, it's a little better. Not in all ways, because everyone loves the sense of Alexander and the touch, but people learn a little better and more quickly themselves this way. So it's very easy for me to instantly see someone's habits, Mm -hmm. like you were talking about before. You just, you, you just experience them if you're, you know, you can just tell what someone's doing because we have those instant communications. And not only can I then teach them things and demonstrate things, but I really help catch them in where their ideas are going a little off in it. And they wait, come back, you know, here, you can be a little more present here, here, notice this. And they just change. And then I have this wonderful practice. I have them do twice a day on their own. That really helps. And I've been teaching online. I, I use zoom most often uh, that Skype's fine too, but I've been teaching online really for about 10 years, because I've had students from different parts of the world. So I already had that background of teaching this online. And the wonderful thing when people experience it in person, which is wonderful, the little thing that can happen with that is they feel something so different that they spend the next few days trying to get that for themselves instead of understanding the thinking that they did or the the signaling the change in their understanding that gets them that instantly. And so online, they are doing that right from the start. So they make these micro changes that keep improving them right from the first lesson on. 
and they can apply it to all kinds of things. And the other thing is the wonderful intimacy of someone's home. Yes, that's good. Yes, they're yeah. in their home environment. You're they're safer. likely to do their habits. They're safer, but they're also a little bit more likely to do their habits. This is the thing. This is the place they're in a lot. And so that, you know, they really, then they start using it there and it changes everything from when they go do anything else, but it really reminds them to use that in their regular life. So, and they have the experience with that being easier that way. It's yeah. a good point because there's a, there's actually good research supporting this now, but I didn't need the research to, to demonstrate this to me at all, but the environment that we're in the for example a dirty cluttered home or a dirty cluttered office has a definite effect not only on our psyche but on our body so you know when you look at feng shui for example they show you how just the placement of where your piano is or where your pictures are hanging or where you have water or not in the house can have a very strong influence on how much life force energy not only flows through space, but is in the space. And so when a person's in the environment where they're getting triggered by their environment, then it's easier for you to see how they're responding to that environment. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised that without you or others knowing that if people got to a certain point of self-awareness in their Alexander lessons, all of a sudden they say, okay, that's it. I got to clean this house up or I got to <laughs> move my furniture because I can feel it too much inside of me. I've done many demonstrations, for example, with my students because they often think that I'm toying with them when I say I can see, feel a bird flying by or I can feel them inside of me. So what I'll do is I'll stand in the middle. At This was at my institute in um, on Sycamore. I'm, I had a 5,000 square foot gym, so it was quite big and a 30 meter uh, sprint track and it and everything. So I'd say, okay, I'll prove it to you. I will stand in the middle of the gym. I will close my eyes and you can even blindfold me if you want. And when I say go, you move anything you want out of its resting place in this gym because I keep it exactly ordered. And I will tell you where you what you what you've touched and moved. And they can't believe that I can do it. I'll say you just moved a 35 pound dumbbell. And lo and behold, I'll open my eyes and they've set it on the floor and taken it out of the rack. And it's nothing magical. It's just that I'm aware of the space around me and I live in that space. So, you know, I mean, I think all of us know, for example, if we come home and, and all of a sudden um, the cupboards are open, the first thing we think is, who's been here? <laughs> we know we didn't do that. You are going to offer us some demonstrations throughout the way, and I have a note here that you you have something to demonstrate now. Would you like to give us a demonstration on on some Alexander work that maybe relates to what we've been talking about? Yeah, so I'll give everyone a moment to stand up. And now as you're standing, I want you to find one place in your body that today, right now, feels a little bit uncomfortable or tight or stiff or some place that's giving you a little signal. So what I want you to do is the place that you found, I don't want you to try and make it better. I want you to just notice the discomfort there right now or the stiffness or tightness. 
just notice that. Don't try and change it. And then what I want you to do is I want you to walk around a little bit and just noticing that discomfort. Don't try and get rid of it. Just keep your attention on that discomfort as you're walking around. So you're walking around and you're just like, oh, yeah, I can feel that area is tight, stiff. Yeah, I feel that. Just keep your, your attention on the stiffness and discomfort. And as you're walking around and keeping your attention on the stiffness, the discomfort there, just have a little bit of a sense of how your walking feels in general as you're doing that. Okay. Now, come back to standing when place, and you can let that area go from your attention. And now I want you to find another area, but this time an area at least compared to that place, an area that feels a bit easier. It can be an, uh, uh, the end of a little finger. And now what I want you to do is to keep your attention on the ease in that area as you walk around. Just keep noticing, feeling the ease in that area as you walk around. So you're walking around and you're just enjoying feeling the ease in that area as you're walking, enjoying that area that's loose and free and light. And just notice as you're enjoying the ease in that area, how your walking feels to you in general. Okay, come on back and you can get comfortable again. And I wonder for how many of you did you notice that when you were focusing on the area that, that I asked you to focus on that felt uncomfortable and tight, does your walking feel a bit more uncomfortable or stilted or lacking flow or heavy? And then was there a difference when you were focusing on the area, the sense of ease? Did that change how your walking felt? Did your walking feel a little bit lighter, easier, freer? When I brought my attention to my neck, every time I stepped on my right leg, I could feel the line of tension moving through the calves, up the hamstrings, through the deeper hip muscles, up my opposite paraspinals, right to my neck. But as I was bringing my focus to the area of discomfort, it was as though an ice cube was melting just because I was looking at it. And then what happened, I was witnessing how now that I'm paying attention to it, my walking started to change to adjust itself so that it didn't keep irritating that area. Mm. Then the area that felt most kind of relaxed to me was my abdominal wall. So when I started doing walking and various movements, because I have such a restricted space, focusing on my abdominal wall, it's as though my whole body oriented its movement strategy toward the relaxed sense that I had in my abdominal wall. And I could feel my neck's tension further dissipating. Mm. 
Yes, exactly. And almost everyone will get that kind of experience from it. And it's great that we notice tension, discomfort, pain, because it's telling us something needs to change. We need to, we need to look at something. We need to notice it. But what we all tend to do is we tend to stay with it, to focus on it, to try and shift around, make a change, to check it out. So we end, to, we end up isolating to that area of tension or discomfort. And it then affects the whole rest of our body. And in fact, our body tends to pull over to that area. Our head and spine tends to pull to that area where our attention is going. When I asked you all to find a place that felt relatively easy or a bit easy, what happened, at least when I was watching you, Paul, what happened even as I asked you that, you got easier. And I will wager you got easier even before you found the place. Because I've been doing this a lot with people. Yeah, I, you know, like I said, as soon as I put my awareness on it, because it's uncomfortable, I wasn't trying to fix anything. I was just witnessing it. But the analogy was it was as though an ice cube was melting and the ice cube would represent the tension so somehow just putting my awareness on it was already, uh, I think... Letting it go a little bit, yeah. Yeah, because I think my desire is to not have the pain there. So my intention, be it background intention, is uh, what's happening. So I was really looking at the alignment of my body, like am I holding my head in a weird spot? But I, when I went to adjust my posture, any movement made it worse. So I was already in balance then as i said i felt the muscular chain reaction from my right foot all the way through the kinetic chain and it stopped right in the pain but as i kept walking it was almost as though the rest of my body was saying to me you don't have to move that way and so i just let my body start doing what it wanted to do and i noticed the way my feet and toes were working with the ground started to change all by themselves. It was like I was just witnessing it. Like when I use infant development, you're accessing neural pathways that are in the spinal cord. So the brain and the body already knows how to fix the problem. You just got to put it in the right movement pattern to let it do it. But once you had me focus on my abdominal wall, I took my awareness off the pain and went to the area of comfort in my body, of ease in my body, and it was almost as though my body took that as a message. Well, if I just take direction from that part, then everybody else seemed to say, yeah, that works just fine. Let's do that. And then all of a sudden the yeah. pain started dropping even more. And now I don't have any discomfort. I just have a sense of warmth, like there's a lot of blood flow, and maybe like someone's worked on my neck or something. Yeah, it's interesting when I've done this with hundreds of hundreds and hundreds of people. And when I ask them, if I'm watching them, I ask them, where, where, where do you sense a little bit of ease? I will see them change immediately with that question. Yes. And then they feel the result of that change. They feel, oh, well, I sense that here, you know, and then I'll say, well, walk and see how that affects you. And it will change the ease. It, it activates that, that sense through your whole body. Where the other way, we're sort of activating the sense of tension. And 
So it's just a little way where you can switch your attention and get a really constructive, good effect in your system. So I have a little practice. If we want to do it, it takes sure. about two, three minutes. But I have this, this little practice for everyone listening. If you would do this twice a day, it takes maybe two minutes when you do it on your own. It's going to be longer because I'll explain it. And it's something you do in your, you can do it as you're walking, you can do it as you're sitting, lying down, you can do it as you're waiting for something to heat up in the kitchen. It's something, as long as you're not really focused on another activity totally, it, you do it with your eyes open and it's going to be asking yourself a mental question. But the odd thing about this practice is you're not going to need to answer the question. Mm. You're just going to be asking your brain to be curious about that question. It's easy to pass the test then. Yes, it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've been doing with this with people for a while now. And everyone who does this practice twice a day, when I see them the next week, they are so different. And I often shockingly so like, what, what have you been doing? Did you go to a spa all week or... Just the amazing changes this will build day to day in your system. Even if you do nothing else but this practice, it will be so helpful. And it will also lead to other ways you can use it, which I can talk about later, to switch from thoughts that are creating anxiety or worry to change even those kind of things. It's going to help you switch your attention. But like you said, Paul, in the beginning, uh, I forget the number began with a three that how many times you need to do something. Usually 300 to 350 develop a new motor program. Yeah. So this is going to be a repetition of that question. It's really good. It's only going to be 40 times and to do it 40 times and make that easy. We'll just do it by touching a finger, starting with your thumb. And we're going to out ask the question out loud. But when you do this practice, you have the question float through your mind like uh, like it's going through in the ocean mist or something with half power thinking or like you're even just reading the question on a big cue card. You just want your brain to be curious about it, but not with any effort like, oh, I got to focus on that question just as easily as you can think of it. And the question is going to be, where do I notice a little bit of ease? Mm -hmm. But you don't try to answer it. No, no, you might notice something. That's fine. But we're going to do this practice pretty quick. So, you know, it might be a bunch of different things, but you don't need to pay attention to that. It, sometimes there'll be a lot of ease created and you won't even know it till you finish doing this little practice and you get up and walk around because ease is often you're doing less. So it can feel like less or sometimes it can feel very noticeable, but that's fine. You can enjoy the feeling afterwards. But to do this practice, we're going to keep building on that because every time you ask that question with curiosity in that mindset of, I'm curious, where, where am I easing a little bit right now? And just that question without trying to do it or answer it or make it happen is going to give you a, like a little degree less of pressure in your system. But then you're starting from that one degree of less pressure when you ask the question again. 
and you get another degree of improvement and another degree and another degree. So each time your bottom line of loss of pressure, of increased ease and flow increases. So by 40 times, you've made some good changes and it goes through your system in a way that you get used to that curiosity. And you might be in the middle of typing an important email and all tightened up trying to get it done in time. And you get so familiar by, with that question from this that you don't even end up needing the words of it. You just think you're going to ask it as you're still focusing on your email. And it makes a big physical change of undoing in your system. So, so let's, we'll, I'll guide you all through this. And I will phrase the question a few different ways. So you can have a choice of how you like to phrase it for yourself. But it, as long as it is a question, just a curiosity, it's like you're, you're the CEO of this brain company here and you're just asking the management to be curious. Hey, where do I notice these? You don't need to go and answer it. Should, should we repeat what you're saying inside of ourselves? Um, you can. You can just, in this way, you can just listen. When you do it yourself, you'll repeat that silently in your mind. But as you like now, you can either repeat it when I say it or you can you can just listen because when the words go in, they're going to make sense to you. Okay. And your brain knows the meaning and it just creates that ease in your system. And I can't tell you how much people change with just this simple practice. It's, a, it's, a, it's something I would love to give everyone to be able to do for themselves to make a constructive change in their life that keeps improving. It doesn't just correct for that day. It really keeps building what you think of as your natural sense of ease, your access to that. So, um, <clears throat> so we'll do it together. So if you would, with your other hand, take hold of the thumb or touch your thumb on the other hand, just as easily as you would like, doesn't matter how you do that. And I'm going to ask the question four times, and then I will switch fingers. I'll say index finger and just touch your index finger. The, the fingers, it's just a way to keep track of how many times you've asked the question. And do this with your eyes open so it's associated with the outside world. You don't need to be looking at a particular thing, but just so it's something that can pop into your mind even during the day in any situation and make a change. So we'll start by easily touching your thumb with one hand, touching the thumb of the opposite hand. And I'll ask the question, where do I notice just a little bit of ease? Where am I easing just a little bit? Where do I seem to be easing just a little bit right now? Where do I notice just a little bit of ease? And touch your little finger, excuse me, your index finger. Where do I notice ease? I'm curious, where's there a little bit of ease in my system? Where right now might I be easing just a little? 
where do I notice ease? And again, you don't need to find anything. You're just asking. You're just getting used to the question, really. And middle finger. Where do I notice ease? Where right now do I notice a little bit of ease? Where might I be easing a little bit right now? I'm curious. Where's there just a little bit of ease? And switch to your ring finger. Where do I notice ease? Where might I be easing just a little bit right now? Where do I notice just a little bit of ease? Where else do I seem to be easing just a little bit? And switch to your little finger. Where do I notice ease? Where do I notice just a little bit of ease? Where do I notice ease? And I'm just putting in the funny tone. You don't need to do that when you ask it yourself. But I want to just emphasize, you just want to be curious. Where do I notice just a little bit of ease? Where else am I easing a little bit? And then switch to the thumb of the other hand. Where do I notice ease? Ah, where right now do I seem to be easing a little bit? Where do I notice a little bit of ease? Where is there just a little bit of ease in my system? And switch to your index finger. Where do I notice ease? Where is there a little bit of ease in my system right now? I'm curious. Where do I notice a little bit of ease? Where right now might I be easing a little bit? Switch to your middle finger. Where do I notice ease? Where right now do I seem to be easing a little bit? Where is there just a little bit of ease in my system? Where do I notice a little bit of ease? And switch to your ring finger. Where do I notice ease? Where right now do I notice a little bit of ease? Where right now do I notice ease? Where might I be easing just a little bit? And switch to your little finger. Where do I seem to be just a little bit easy? Where else do I seem to be a little bit easy? Where am I easing just a little bit? Where do I notice ease? And so that's it. 40 times. What, what was your experience? Well, I started getting like um, bubbling happiness inside of me. and I saw that smile. <laughs> yeah, you know, it was like, uh, but I kept cracking up at myself because the teacher in me keeps trying to answer the question. I'm like, quit trying to answer the question. You know, just be with it. And then I, when I would not answer the question, I felt it's really hard to put in words. I felt, I felt like I was expanding. Yes. I was like, 
it was as though the fact that I didn't have to answer it unwound me and took the tension of the need for an outcome away. And so my body didn't feel as though it had to prepare a response. And so all of a sudden, as we were going through, by the end of the first hand, it felt as though the atoms in my body were vibrating at a higher rate, and it was almost as though levitation wanted to take place. Kind of like you get after breathing exercises, where you're saturating yourself with oxygen, you get almost like a LSD kind of expansion and high, except uh, subtle and gentle, like little fairies wanting to lift my arms up or something. Yeah, and it really lets it lets your system, which knows what to undo and what to ease, it lets that take over. And every time there's something different. Yeah. And, and it will, it'll affect your day. And I suggest people do this twice a day, every day. I mean, you will get, you will get easier and easier. It's not like you're just going to get the same thing each day. Mm -hmm. You will find that things just start changing in your body. It is, it is. And it's such a cool way to learn to switch your attention. At some point later on today, I'd like to do another, maybe not right now, we can talk a little bit, but I would like to take this into using it in another little practice that people can do that affects, that we could do it right now, I guess, uh, but that affects people in terms of how they think about something they're concerned about. Yeah, go ahead. And takes, well. Okay. So this, this ease cycle. This ease cycle, I got this from a friend of mine, Neil Morales. He calls it the cycle. He came up with it, and it's wonderful. And I teach it to all my students. It's just great. Um, there's a way during anything you're doing during the day, as you're used to that question, you can pop that question into your head, whatever you're doing. You know, you could be anything going on, and you just pop it into your head, and you don't need to answer it just like we did in this ease cycle practice of the 40 times and things just automatically get easier. You get, you expand in that you lose extra pressure. You get, and I, I often say a bit easy just because you don't need to have a lot. You need to just be going in the, in the right direction, sort of you need to be getting better instead of worse <laughs> or easier instead of less easy. And um, just like we did in this e-cycle, what happens to us when we're worried about something or when we're, ha when we're having a thought cycle through our head that's giving us anxiety? What happens is a similar thing only in the other direction. It's like we get less easy every time we think it and then we think it again and we get less easy. I think it again. So it's like doing this ease cycle, only we're doing the anxiety cycle and we don't realize it without the fingers. And so people habitually do that. They run those thoughts through their head and they don't realize each thought has a corresponding physical reaction. And um, it can be subtle, but it is, we don't really have a thought without a corresponding reaction. I mean, it's all on all levels. So um, 
this this is a great practice to do when you have something that that's coming up that you are feeling anxious about or something you're worried about. And so I would just, even though we just did that lovely ease cycle <laughs> to do it right after that, you're feeling really good. But I would like you to just think of something that you're that you feel a little anxiety about. Something coming up you don't want to do or it can be something simple. It can be just like, oh my gosh, I don't have any time to get these things done. And these are, I have to finish this today or whatever it is, or I'm concerned about whatever it is. You can just, I want you to just pick something and I'm just going to label that anxiety. But, but when I say anxiety, I want you to think of that particular worry or concern or anxiety. And so what I'm going to do, and this is, this is the practice I would like you to all learn and be able to do for yourself. And it's particularly good, works particularly well if you start it maybe a couple of days after you've been doing that ease cycle twice a day. Because then you're really so quick at asking that question. So it's really easy to switch your attention back to, where am I easing just a little bit? So we're going to be switching your attention between what I'll just say is anxiety and you think of the particular thing. We're going to do just one particular anxiety for this exercise. <clears throat> and you can on your own when you want to do it and you have a few, you can then do the exercise again with another situation or anxiety that you're thinking of. So we're going to pick one particular anxiety for this and I'm going to Repeat the ease curiosity question. I'm going to repeat that five times to start with. So when you do this on your own, you don't need to use your fingers for this five times. But you're just going to ask the ease question, the curiosity, five times without needing find, to find an answer. So I'll take you through that. And you just can listen to me and have that happen in your head. And when you do it yourself, you do it silently in your mind, later on on your own. And then on the sixth time, I'm going to say anxiety. And I want you to think of the situation, whatever it is, that anxiety. And notice if you sense a little bit of energy change sort of in your throat, your head neck area, your chest, your breathing, a very subtle energy change like a little drop in energy when you think of the anxiety thing and you don't need to worry about not feeling that but just notice that because it helps you realize oh huh that might be what that thought does to me so i'm going to say anxiety and you just think of the situation and as soon as you start thinking of the situation even before you feel it it's going to really start producing that change and then I'm going to come right back with that question. Where do I notice just a little bit of ease? So you're just going to switch your attention very simply just by asking that question. And then I'm going to say anxiety again. So we're going to go back and forth with that. And we'll do eight sets of the back and forth. You can do eight or ten sets of that. And what this will do later on, it's so cool. Later on, when you go to think of the thing that was producing the anxiety or the situation, 
you get such a different reaction. You don't get that build up reaction that's done from the repetition of building the anxiety on top of itself or cycling it through in your mind. You actually just like get the reaction of, oh, okay, so I have to deal with that. Doesn't make it Pollyanna like, oh, I don't care about that. It's just like, oh, okay, so I have to deal with that. What should I do with that? You know, it makes it, it just makes it back to just being very practical. Takes away all that built up reaction that we've stored in our body. Because with that built up reaction of the anxiety, you know, if we've cycled it through our head, we have gotten tighter, more compressed, more down, and less free, and associating a lot of tension and anxiety with that to where we think of it without doing this cycle. If we think of it later in the day, we get all of a sudden we're starting at that incredibly anxious level because that's where we left off before. Just like the ease cycle, you know, later if you've done the 40 times or four times a finger of the ease question, the curiosity of that, later in the day you think of ease and you're starting on that level that you left it. So <laughs> we're just going to make a little change and work with how to switch your thinking. So this isn't like, oh, I always got to concentrate on ease or anything. Not like that. Nope. You're just going to be able to switch a thought when you want. And you don't need to keep one or the other. You're just making a little change that makes a change in you and stops the kind of downward cycle of the anxiety. So let's do this together. So everyone, think of the thing that you want to do for this exercise that produces anxiety in you. And now we're going to just start with five times of the curiosity ease question. Where do I notice just a little bit of ease? Where right now do I notice just a little bit of ease? Where is there a little bit of ease right now? Where do I seem to be easing just a little bit? Curious, where do I notice a little bit of ease? Anxiety? Where do I notice a little bit of ease? I'm curious, where do I notice a little bit of ease right now? Where do I notice a little bit of ease? Anxiety? Where do I notice just a little bit of ease? I'm curious. Where's there a little bit of ease right now? Where do I seem to be easing just a little bit? Anxiety? Where do I seem to be easing just a little bit? I'm curious. Where do I notice just a little bit of ease? Where is there a little bit of ease right now in my system? Anxiety? Where do I notice just a little bit of ease? Where do I seem to be easing just a little bit right now? Where do I notice ease? Anxiety? Where do I notice ease? Where right now do I notice just a little bit of ease? 
Where do I seem to be easing just a little bit? Anxiety. Where do I notice ease? Where do I seem to be easing just a little bit? I'm curious. Where's there a little bit of ease in my system? Anxiety. Where do I notice ease? Where, where, I wonder, where is there a little bit of ease in my system? I'm just curious, where do I notice a little bit of ease? Anxiety. Where do I notice a little bit of ease? Where right now do I notice a little bit of ease? I'm curious, where seems to be easing? right now in my system. Good. So we did eight sets of the back and forth. And it doesn't matter when you think of the anxiety thing, if you notice that kind of drop in energy in your system and that's fine. As long as you just like come right back. And I asked it, I ended up asking the three questions each time in that. I asked it three times. But when you're used to doing the cycle, you can just even switch it and ask one question. Your brain will be like, oh, yeah, I know that question. Hey. And it just creates the ease. So it just gets your system not to associate that kind of stress and tension with that situation. And you get a fresh slate. It's very interesting because as soon as you said anxiety, all the feelings that I described before, that expansive and openness, it was as though a lightning bolt came right into my neck, went right through my sternum and right into my stomach and small intestines and everything just tightened up like someone had hung a, a medicine ball off my neck and it was in my belly. But then when you started asking, where do I feel ease? It would ab abate. It would just dissolve again. But what I found was most interesting is by the time you got to the sixth round and you said the word anxiety, the effects of hearing the anxiety and knowing what I was coupling to it in my mind got less and less to the point yes. where it was it was like I could see that if I practiced, it wouldn't have such a hold on me anymore. Yes. Yeah. And it just makes it then so practical to deal with, with whatever's going on. And it is such a wonderful thing to use for anything that's creating stress. And then you get to realize, oh, that's what that thought does to me. Yes. That's what I'm doing to myself with that. And then because you do the, the ease cycle practice, the four times a finger, twice a day, you really understand how repeating a thought really builds in your system. You know, so you start catching, oh, I'm really worried about this. Oh, my gosh, no, I got to hurry. I'm getting some, I got to get this, whatever it is. And you just throw in, oh, I'll throw in, where do I notice ease? So you, you stop that building of connecting it with such a strong amount of, of, of loss of energy, of tension, of restriction. Very fun. I, I love the practicality and the mobility. I mean, you can do this pretty much anywhere. No equipment needed. 
but I, I really love the fact that these are palpable tools for becoming aware of the impact that our judgments, our thoughts, and the beliefs behind them are having on the natural harmony of our body. Absolutely. Yes. It's as though, to give an analogy, when your body's in its natural state, it's like a car who's got a good front end alignment. You can let go of the steering wheel and it'll just go down the road for you. And, you know, occasionally you can just bump the wheel with your knee and drive for miles without any effort versus a car with a front end misalignment, which would be the, the anxiety issue. And you constantly have to hold the wheel and focus or you might crash because the car will pull off to one side of the road. So it's almost as though our negative injunctions upon ourself are malaligning us. But this time we become aware of how a subtle thing that can't even be weighed or measured, such as a thought, can actually direct the flow of energy and even the alignment of the mass of our body instantly. Yes, and the car analogy was great because it gets like that. As you do this practice, you're starting to know you're, the alignment's great. You're just going down the road. The car's just staying on the center of the road where it's supposed to be. And you start being able to recognize when, oh, it's starting to go here. And you catch it at that point. Yes. And it just takes a little, oh, where do I notice ease? And you just, in that little, just tiny correction, it's back to its nice, natural, effortless travel. Eileen, you speak of mental non-doing and the signaling of energy lines or vectors. Can you explain that and possibly share an example so that we all have a sense of what you mean with energy lines and vectors in that regard? Yes, that non-doing really ends up being a way you can actually just clear your mind for a moment. And even if it's just for a moment, it's I, I guess we'll, we can talk in a little bit about concentration and what we do to ourselves when we think we're trying to concentrate. But um, that'll go into this, how we mistake certain sensations for thinking. But with this, in terms of the just the idea of canceling, of inhibition, or just instantly just deciding, okay, I'm going to stop whatever's on my mind for a second. I'll just let my mind go. And it's so funny. You'll find that even if you're in the middle of talking, that you have not lost your idea. We tend to hang on to an idea. You know, so even thinking, we have a lot of doing, doing being a muscle tightening that we've associated with it feeling in our body but we don't realize that feeling isn't necessary for that in fact what we're feeling is tension yes so um to connect that to the vectors to the lines of direction really when you undo compression when you undo things that that give you kind of a uh sense of tightness and correction, things release in the direction that they go when they lengthen, when they undo tightening. So very simply in Alexander, 
there's the idea that when uh, there's all these different ways to do this, but there is an idea that when our neck releases, what happens is our head releases on that allanto-occipital joint in a way that it lets it release a little bit forward and up because when we tighten it, it pulls a little back and down. Now, these concepts are going to be really hard to hear without practice and it's not a position. You don't put your head anywhere. I'm just going to give you an example of that that you can do yourself that will help you notice what I mean by that and help you understand how you cancel, how you stop, how you do non-doing, how you do (laughs) non-doing, how you cancel a signal, how you inhibit. Allow non-doing. Yes, allow non-doing. So if everyone would just raise up one arm to where your elbow's bent and you're not resting it on the desk, it's in the air, and your forearm is going straight up towards the ceiling, so it's facing up toward the ceiling, and make a fist with that hand. The face side is the palm side, the knuckles are the back side of your head, and we're going to tighten your wrist, tighten your your fist, and pull it into the knuckles, back and down into Really tighten it into the back side of your forearm. And you got that really tight. Now release that. Yeah. And it just pops up, doesn't it? Not do that for everyone. And in fact, it's kind of up there and it's floating around. It's pretty loose. You don't even need to hold your fist up there. It just doesn't fall over forward. And it went against gravity. Nobody ever says, oh, it's a miracle. Look, it went against gravity. You know, this is just, this seems very obvious. Of course, I was tightening it tightening my fist kind of back and down there and you told me to release it so of course it just popped up and you can put your arm down now and I have a question for everyone how did you release that I know I told you release it but how did you actually do that just let go about that how did you let go I just relaxed how how'd you do that the only words I have is I just quit it. <laughs> you did. Exactly. You did. You were giving this signal that wasn't that comfortable because I told you all to do this. I said, tighten that back and down, tighten that really good tight back and down. You have to, that's not familiar to most people. You have to keep giving that signal from your brain. You're giving that signal, tighten that, tighten that. Oh, she's telling me to tighten that. So I got to keep giving that signal. As soon as you stop giving that signal, it just pops right up to its natural ease. Mm-hmm. So all you did was quit. All you did was inhibit. You stopped giving a signal. It's that simple. And your system was just has this wonderful coordination and back to its natural coordination. And even though it went against gravity and we think, oh, yeah, but with my head and body, you know, I'm tightening my neck, you know, or tightening my body. My head, it's going to pop up if I stop giving that signal. In fact, I'm just going to be in a heap on the floor. No. It is going to just undo to its nice, beautiful, natural coordination that's just in there. That's really being signaled all the time. We just get in the way with these habits and have overlaid them on that. So that's an example of non-doing and stopping 
we think we have to do something to stop, like we have to do something else. And luckily, nobody would do this with their wrist, even if they knew nothing else. They've never had any kind of experience in working with their body. They would just, you know, if they were tightening their wrist back and down, they would never reposition it in a better position while they were tightening it. Everyone knows that's going to hurt their wrist later. And they know that would be bad. But with our system, we don't know that with our head and body. We just think, oh, I'm doing some tightening. I got to reposition. And we don't think that if we stop, we give the signal to cancel that. Things are just going to pop up in gravity. Gravity's there. It's going to help us pop up. It's going to take, our system is going to take over the way it's designed to deal with gravity. Gravity is a great thing. It's letting us stay on this earth. That exercise, how can I or anyone apply that to an area of significance? You know, a lot of people's holding patterns are unconscious, but let's say someone knows they have back discomfort or they're susceptible to it. Could they pull themselves backwards and then do the same thing they did with their spine that you did with their wrist? No. Thank you for asking. No, that's not a good thing to do really with other areas in your body. We just did that for an example with that. But in fact, we are doing that. Our habits are that. We just don't feel them. Yeah, so so I'm somebody asking- might be pulling themselves backwards already. It wouldn't help to do it more to notice it. No. But this example, the reason that I use the, I made the analogy for the neck and for the head is you could recognize that you, you know, because we talked about pulling your fist back and down, that you were pulling your head, the analogy place that was analogous to that, back and down into your forearm by tightening the muscles that went across your wrist. Mm -hmm. We do that without sensing it with muscles that go across our head neck area. And we don't sense that. And that really affects the rest of the coordination. Yeah, go ahead. How can we take that exercise, though, into a practical application of something that's relevant to what's yes. going on with us? If you, this is much trickier to do, but if you just think, don't tighten first to know you're tightening, you're already tightened. We just don't know it. You know, the problem is we don't sense whatever's habitual, whatever's consistent and habitual. Mm-hmm. We don't sense that. That just feels like us. That's what we weigh or that's what our body has to do to support itself. We're just used to those sensations, meaning that, and that tightness. And so if just we have an idea, um, actually, for those who are watching, I have my little assistant here, Fred, mm-hmm. and I just have Fred demonstrate too. I will describe it for those who are just listening. But if we have an idea, you know, maybe I don't realize it, and that area where my head and spine connect it's way up there in there behind our nose it's it's kind of in a lot of things in there it's pretty deep in there it's pretty high up to where we have sensation most of our sensation is a little lower in our neck but up at that top couple of joints we feel it a bit there's not a lot of awareness there for most everyone and so If we're tightening that and we don't know, what if we assumed we were? Don't do it. Don't try and do it to then release it. This isn't like tensing, relaxing thing. Mm -mm. This is, 
well, what if I don't even realize it and I'm actually tightening my neck in a way that's actually compressing my head into my spine and shortening my spine? What if I'm doing that and I have no sense of it? What if this seems normal? What if I thought I was? What if I could just in your mind exaggerate a picture of what that might look like? The thing we did with the wrist, what if I was doing that with my head? So for those of you listening, it's she's tipping the skeleton back. So it's like you're looking up. Oh, it's different than looking up. Looking up's pretty easy like this. I am actually pretending this little skeleton Fred had neck muscles and he was compressing his head backwards and down into yeah, okay. his body. Right yeah. in, right in the suboccipital head up, But a lot of times we can also do it and it hardly looks like we're doing it visually. So, but we are putting that pressure there. And so that's a really common habit people have when they do things and a common habit they carry through a lot of their lives and exaggerate at other times. So if we think, well, maybe I'm doing that thing I was doing with my wrist. Don't try and do it. Just think, well, what if I had no idea and I was doing that? What if I just canceled it? Yeah, I didn't need, don't need to try and feel canceling it. What if I can just imagine that picture of what I did with my wrist, that tightening, and think, I can't feel it, but I wonder if I'm doing that. I'm going to cancel that. Mm -hmm. And when we do, it allows our head to release a little bit like the wrist did. We were pulling it back and down like your fist did. We were pulling that back and down into your forearm. When you released it, it went up floated up, but it also lost that backward pull. So it kind of floated forward and up, not forward and down, not like tipping your head down or it just released that pressure that we don't sense. And it, and it released the muscles that were doing that just by canceling it. And the same thing here and the balance of our, the way we, the tension that we don't realize we put in our, head spine coordination can really interfere with the outcome of our coordination it makes everything work harder it just it's a little bit of putting the parking brake on our coordination well eileen we, we've covered the next question already so uh we've covered a lot and um it's very very interesting and i absolutely dig the question in fact i wrote down where do i feel a little bit of ease right now and stuck it on my bottom of my computer screen so that i can begin the practice of every day before i start engaging the issues of the world in my work practice that and i'm going to try that for a while and and give it a good working over that's how i do things i test everything but i can only excuse me i can only imagine if it continues to grow like chi builds in your body from practice, that if that experience that I had was to grow any significant amount, it, I, I can only get a sense that it would be very freeing and relaxing. So I personally got a lot out of that exercise. I thought it was quite magical. Um, are there any closing comments that you would like to offer Eileen? Or I know that you're going to, um, 
at least uh, share uh, what whatever people need to know to reach you, or or uh, I can't remember if you were offering people any kind of a discount. I don't. I I have a regular discount on my website for anyone that does a four lesson package. Okay, good. Um, so the best way to reach me is to reach me through my website, which is Alexander Technique San Diego dot com. There you can send me a message. There's a link to the email, my email to the phone. There's lots of little videos there, little educational videos. And um, I also have a YouTube page under Alexander Technique San Diego. Oh, good. And there's lots of little videos there you can see on different topics, self-help videos, uh, free videos. So. Yeah, um, the best way to reach me is really through my website. And I would love to help any of you not only take further what we did today, but really learn a way you can use this yourself that will be just personally tailored to your interests. And like Paul and I were talking about, it is going to benefit everything. It'll benefit all aspects of you. We might start with just what interests you. You know, oh, I got some back pain or this. Mm-hmm. We'll start with that, but it does, it, it goes all levels. And through learning it, you'll get that understanding. You start, you start seeing, you start experiencing how things affect you, how you can make that change instantly. You don't need to know what the right thing is. The right thing does itself. Yeah. Uh, okay. Didn't get to speak about concentration, which is so fascinating. Oh, if you'd like can I to. throw that in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, yes, just to few minutes and, and uh don't my problem is i'm getting really hungry <laughs> <laughs> i just i won't talk a lot about this but it just gives an example of how we associate feelings of tension with being able to do a particular activity and we don't even realize it so if you're going to try and concentrate on something really focus and concentrate you're probably going to look for a feeling you have of your brain working Mm-hmm. like lifting a heavy all- weight yeah you know you'll see people they'll tighten up their brow or they're tighten their neck they'll pull their head back or they'll do something funny with their tongue you know you can see it on people but we look for this feeling that we think says oh yeah my brain is ready to concentrate now i can feel that i can focus and all that is is tension you've just associated that with thinking you can't feel your brain working Mm -hmm. But in fact, what you're doing to concentrate is you're actually looking for a feeling of thinking and looking to maintain that tension that gives you that feeling. You're using a lot of your brain to do that, and you have very little left to focus on the thing you're interested in. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating thing we don't realize, but it's one of those aspects of the Alexander Technique where you see you have mistaken tension for the ability to do something. And they're totally, it, it's, it's not at all necessary. In fact, it limits it. So anyway, it's just a fun thing to just help people recognize. Yes. So I, I'll stop. I've got tons of things to talk about. But this well, you, well, you know, that. <laughs> yeah, I think the goal is just to really give people an experience and an understanding of what Alexander Technique and how it applies and I think we've done that. We've hit the ball right out of the park. And I, I actually found it fascinating, even though I've studied, I think I've read three books, the one I mentioned and two others, um, spent time with you, 
uh, have sent clients to you. And so I've not only had that, but I've actually gotten the special gift of seeing what happens to my clients when they come back from you. You know, it's, it's very, that's for me as a therapist is how I can judge if something's actually having positive effects on somebody. There's been myriads of cases that I heard this doctor was really good at that or that therapist, but the patient goes, spends the time and the money, they come back and I can find no changes in anything that's objective to me as a therapist. So I know, well, I'm not going to have them spend more money on that. Um, a good example is, do you know who Leilani Lee is? I don't. Oh, no. wow. That's somebody I'd really love you to connect to. She is the most amazing visceral manipulator. and She's from San Diego. And yeah, I think she's probably about your age. She's been at it a long time and she is damn good at it. So just to give you an example... I had a guy that came to me with quite a bad scoliosis, but it was not a structural scoliosis. It was a functional scoliosis. And my assessment showed me that he had a lot of tension and blockage in his liver. Uh, I think one of his kidneys. And so, you know, I said, look, the amount of money that I charge an hour for me to do visceral manipulation on you Compared to Leilani Lee, she's a million times better at it than me. I can do it, but you'll save enough money to drive all the way here from Northern California, have a party, and go see Leilani Lee. So at that time, I think I was 500 bucks an hour, and she was like 110 an hour or something like that. One session with her, he came back to me, and he was so beautifully aligned. I mean, she took like a, probably about a 35 degree lateral curve and straightened it out in one session, just mobilizing wow. his viscera and restoring the motility of his organs. And it had huge changes on him mentally and emotionally. My point only being is as a therapist, I'm looking for tangible results. And so I think anybody that did the exercises with us today got tangible results, unless they're already like just so wooden that they can't even feel themselves anymore, uh, which just means they need more and they should probably hire you. But I love the fact that I got to learn new things and we got to get some tangible experience of the, of the Alexander Technique, not just talking about it, which was fantastic. So thank you very much. Excited for people to find you and work with you. Cause I know how good your work is and I always feel good. I always get a great sense of joy when I refer people to someone that I know is passionate about their work is good at their work and is really the, you know, the epitome of the, the, the not only the professional, but the craftsman, you know, it's like whoever makes Rolex watches knows how to build a watch who built, whoever builds Rolls Royces knows how to build a car. And, Eileen knows how to do Alexander better than anybody I've ever met in my life. So it's been a great honor to share you. And it just inspires me to look for more people to send you now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I'd love to see them. Yes. I'd love to see any of you interested in this. It, it, it will change your life. And you'll be able to use these things all your life. And you'll get changes that are different each time. Just 
as you as you learn more of it, you improve to a whole different level you wouldn't even have known existed. So yes. there's, there's planes of change. <laughs> and I remember I sent Angie to you when she was pregnant, wasn't she? I think she yeah. was pregnant. I remember she came back to me saying that she could walk a lot better and she had a lot more uh, sense of relaxed movement, ease in her body. And, and she noticed it right away. So I think that's another um, sort of whole class of people as all the women that are pregnant. I mean, it's a lot of work, especially in the third trimester. And that's why, because Angie was just got to the point where she was waddling. And I remember saying, you really need to go see Eileen Troberman. She'll help you move better. And, and she loved it. So I think for all of you women out there that are pregnant or thinking or wanting to become pregnant and planning on it, learning from Eileen how to use your body and move your body could make not only a much easier carrying period, but these techniques can obviously carry over to the delivery because you're learning how to engage yourself with much greater ease. And and God, ease is a good idea in the birthing process. Anything you use your mind and body for, whether it's a sport, whether it's just a daily life thing, that'll improve with this. Anything you're actually doing with yourself improves. So, yes, yes. I've worked with a lot of women with pregnancy. and mm-hmm. Yeah. So, AlexanderTechniqueSanDiego.com is Eileen's website. It's Eileen Troberman. And she does do, as we've said, uh, coaching online so you can work with her from anywhere in the world. And should you come to beautiful San Diego, she's in Encinitas. You are still in Encinitas, right? I'm still in Encinitas, yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. and after this all passes, I'm going to be seeing people in person again. But people learn so much online. Oh, it's yes. amazing. I, you know, they really learn it for themselves. They really catch how their thoughts affect them. Mm -hmm. They make the change. They can feel the change. It's great. So this has led to a whole new opening for people who don't live here. Yeah. You know, expands the likelihood of Alexander reaching itself around the world. So maybe there's a, a COVID gift there. Yes, I think so. Fantastic. Well, Eileen, great to spend time with you. You're amazing. I love you. And I hope I get to see you before too long again. So maybe somewhere along the way, we'll find another way to do something together and share it with everybody. Thank you, Paul. It's been a real treat. Thank you. And it's so wonderful to see you. Thank you. Lots of love. And to you. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Eileen Troberman. You can visit Eileen's website at alexandertechniquesandiego.com or watch her YouTube channel at Alexander Technique San Diego. If you would like to book a consultation with Eileen, visit her website or email her directly at troberman at gmail.com. That's T-R-O-B-E-R-M-A-N at gmail.com. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash Living4D with Paul Check. Watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and get your free subscription to check videos and more at the Czech Institute's new media site, chikiva.com.